Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. As the US starts to consider more aggressive interest rate rises, we talk about where the US economy is headed, how it could impact global growth, and where investment opportunities may be, with Ron Temple, Chief Market Strategist at Lazard Asset Management, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Word on the Street. I am in the unfamiliar position this time of being in the host chair. I will try not to mess up and bring my predecessors into disrepute. But we've got a particularly special episode today. We are very fortunate to be joined by Ron Temple of Lazard, the asset manager, to give us the skinny on all things US. Ron has a list of achievements, accolades and responsibilities I could literally spend the next 20 minutes on. However, in order to shortcut all of that, I would suggest you just Google his name with Lazard and I can tell you that our incredibly rigorous, uh, thorough due diligence process has led to the fact that Lazard is one of the fund houses that we tend to use a bit to help us colour in our multi-asset class funds and portfolios. So we delegate to their specific areas of expertise. And Ron is a key player within that business. So he's chief market strategist and a key player in that fund house. He has a very wide reach within Lazard. But for the purposes of today, I'm hoping to grill him on the US, which uh, I think really is his, his bread and butter. I hope you don't mind me speaking for you on that front. Ron. Not a problem. Okay, good, good. Yes. So, and, and he is from America, which also kind of helps. So, uh, and for listener purposes, remember as much as we want to think, and this is a primarily a UK audience, obviously, but as much as we in the UK want to think that we are at the center of the known universe in economic and market terms, we are all but irrelevant. It is the US economy that sets the beat for the world's economy and capital markets, actually including those in the UK. So being well informed on what goes on in the US in policy and other terms, that is very, very helpful for all of you investors. That's sort of the preamble. Have I got it roughly right, Ron? Is that okay? Have I summarised? Oh, it sounds good to me. Thank you. Okay, good. Good, good, good. So, I mean, I think what we'll start off with, I was hoping to do, is just to get your views on... I mean, the big debate at the moment is obviously with regards to inflation, how much of a beaten foe it is and where policy uh, interest rates will go next. We obviously had the Fed chair uh, yesterday uh, warning us again that actually we may not be done with rising interest rates. There's more to go. Give us a sort of summary of your views here and then we'll take it from there, I guess. Right. So, well, first of all, when I look at inflation, I think it will be a bumpy, elongated path to a 2% inflation level in the U.S. And frankly, that's true in many other economies as well. I think what Chair Powell's commentary in the Senate Banking Committee was all about was reflecting on the fact that since the last FOMC meeting, which was early February, the economic data and the inflation data have come in and hot. They've been coming in hotter than expected. The job numbers for January were stunning at 517,000 new jobs. And by the way, for context, in the U.S., you need about under 100,000 jobs to maintain the unemployment rate where it is in light of population growth. So miles ahead of where you want to be on that front. And then we also had a surprisingly high inflation reading. And I think basically where we are on the inflation battle is if you we can dissect this multiple ways, but we don't want to spend 20 minutes on the minutia of CPI versus PCE. But bottom line, the current run rate on core inflation, excluding food and energy, is really around four and a half to five percent. Right. Now, the official year-on-year figure is 5.6, but what I'm looking at is like the last one, two, three months and saying, okay, let's ignore the base effects from last year. Let's see what the current run rate is. And I do worry that when we get the inflation reading next week in mid-March, 
we may well see another figure that comes in at that four and a half to five percent. And we can dig into the different care, you know, elements there if you'd like. Trimmed mean, but, Dalla, yeah, you know, exactly. all the various so, kind of types of ways that people cut it out. Super to, cool. <laughs> totally wonk out and really bore everyone to tears. Let's not do that. But yes, the but. bottom line is it's still high. Now, I think by the end of 2023, we're likely to be somewhere more around three and a half percent year on year. Still uncomfortably high. The problem is it's going to be bumpy. Mm -hmm. And the risk is the longer inflation stays high, the higher the probability is that workers demand higher wage increases that then feeds back into another round of price increases. And and just one other piece of data there, for the last two years, workers have lost material ground in terms of real wages. Inflation on the headline basis is running 200 basis points above wage growth. And really oddly, despite how tight the labor market is, I mentioned the 517,000 jobs, If we look at the number of unfilled positions in the U.S. relative to unemployed people, it's around 1.9 unfilled jobs per unemployed person. The highest we'd ever seen before the pandemic was 1.25. And so, you know, I look at that market and say, okay, you've been losing ground on wages. You have pretty significant bargaining power if you're a worker in the U.S. who's good at doing your job. The risk of someone going in and saying, you know, 5% wage increase won't cut it. I need 10 is relatively high, but this is the trillion dollar debate amongst economists is, you know, why wages aren't tracking inflation. Well, that's a great, great, great starter. And I guess a couple of questions that come out of that. The first one really is about the data. And so obviously, was it the beginning of this year, or end of last year, we had a massive revision to the mm-hmm. data set, which totally changed everyone's opinion of where inflation was heading. You know, but previous to this revision from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, it looked like we we're on a very nice trend. And the idea that you could have this immaculate disinflation, as they talk about, where you don't get a recession, inflation comes down and we don't get anything, you know, it all comes very nicely. Uh, that seemed to be much more likely. And then suddenly, these revisions changed the picture entirely. So yeah. how much can we trust the data, including the labor market data? You I mean, you talk about this, I mean, there's subject to huge revisions. So how do you kind of see your way through all of this, which tends to sort of make fools of all of us, I guess, and to a certain extent? Well, I think the data is directionally trustworthy. And by the way, we could have a whole other podcast in terms of talking about investments in government data collection, because if you really think about it, the global capital markets rely on this data. Yeah, yeah. And in many cases, we have not really updated the process of collecting and analyzing the data in decades. So yeah. we'll put that aside. Yeah, that is but another But to your podcast, point on inflation, <laughs> the revisions in the fourth quarter were really seasonal adjustment re- revisions that raised what was originally reported to be a core CPI run rate of closer to 3.13 and a quarter up to four and a quarter, if I yeah. recall the numbers correctly. Now, Again, I think directionally these, you know, this information is reliable. And maybe this is just a reminder of how important it is for all investors to not overly obsess or extrapolate from a single data point. Yeah. I mean, we need to take them in collective terms. And that's why I referenced inflation when CPI and PCE and referenced the job openings and the labor, you know, you have to look at the whole picture. And bottom line is everything I see in the US still says a pretty strong economy with some minor signs of fragility on the consumer side that we can dig into if you like. But but it's not surprising that the revision was higher on inflation. And again, I think people are kind of getting to grips with that now. Yeah, fair enough. And so uh, I guess the other sort of big question that came out of what you were just talking about was that amazing kind of job openings to unemployed mm-hmm. story. And obviously, there are sort of a, a couple of camps on this. And one is that you take it very seriously and literally and you say, you know, this is a super hot labor market and it really needs cooling urgently and unemployment needs to go up. And the other is that this is kind of an anomaly, one of many anomalies that comes out of the pandemic, a period which is, mm-hmm. you know, there's no precedent for in terms of policymaker response or anything like it. And that we're now, you know, we're no longer in Kansas. It's a very different world. 
Is there a sort of a side that you would lean to on this in particular, or is there sort of thoughts you have there? I lean toward the data being reliable and that we really should trust it. And again, I think you should always take data seriously. And, and maybe the way to think about this is you want to look at the quantitative analysis and the qualitative, and they do line up pretty well in this case. Again, high job openings, high job creation. The qualitative side, what we hear from employers is they're really afraid to cut workers. Right. I mean, even in industries where they're seeing a slowdown or, you know, seeing margin pressure, it's been so hard to hire people that the last thing you want to do is get rid of someone who's actually a good worker. Now, mm -hmm. you know, when things slow down, you always take the opportunity to call the low performers, but companies are really reluctant. And, you know, we've seen a wave, by the way, of tech layoffs, but the total number of layoffs is under 200,000. I would argue in some of those cases, it was companies who extrapolated very optimistically from the pandemic and said, we're going to grow faster than we ever thought. And we've got to hire lots of people and they realize they overdid it. Mm -hmm. But again, back to the qualitative, the anecdotal evidence, what we're hearing is many of those tech employees who get laid off have multiple job offers before, the, you know, within weeks. Right. And they never show up in the unemployment roles. Yeah. And if I look at the financial services industry, you know, there have been some very high profile announcements from some of the big broker dealers, investment banks. One of them was 6% of the headcount, but that was because of a strategic change in direction. Mm -hmm. But the other ones were generally 2 to 3%. That's, again, back to your kind of annual attrition. So... Again, all of the qualitative sites says to me that there's still a very tight labor market and we should rely on the data, recognizing that my job opening number I talked about, the 11 million open jobs, which, by the way, today we'll get an update to that number. There could be some squishiness in that number. Yeah. There are questions, you know, if, if Barclays had an opening and it's credit card operations in the U.S., could it post on Monster and on other websites? And could that be double counted? Maybe. Mm -hmm. But again, directionally. 50% higher openings per unemployed person than we had at any point before the pandemic. Even if you haircut that, the data is pretty clear. Right. That's interesting. And so what does that mean in, in your view for where policy has to go, interest rate policy has to go? Is, does the Fed have to go, you know, 6-ish percent and stay there for a long mm. time? Is that the risk or the underpriced risk from you in capital markets? And what does that mean? Well, it's not as underpriced as it used to be. Well, it's certainly um, not. So, no, yeah. you know, if I look at the market as of today, as we speak, mm. the terminal rate being priced by the market is just over 5.65%. Mm -hmm. So the market is saying 55 to 5 75 is where we'll get by October. My base case before Jay Powell's speech or com, you know, testimony to the Senate was that five and a quarter to five and a half seemed like a reasonably probable, let's say, 40% scenario. Yeah. But then there was a 30% scenario that they paused at five and a quarter, five and a half, and then ultimately went to 575 to six. And the reason I'm saying the range, by the way, is there's the lower and upper bound. So mm -hmm. effectively, I thought there was a pretty strong probability we get to six. I think that probably might have gone up. Again, no real value in my view of betting on whether it's 50 or 25 at the March 22nd meeting. In the next week, we'll have a much better sense of that with the jobs yeah. number, the jolts number, and the CPI. But I do think the market on short-term interest rates is finally within a stone's throw of where it needs to be. The long-term interest rates, the credit markets and the equity market are not within a stone's throw. So again, it's going to be interesting to see how the Fed plays this. And I'm really conflicted. Part of me thinks the Fed should raise 50 basis points on March 22nd just to send a strong signal yet again that they are going to tame inflation. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I look at it and say we've gone from zero to four and a half, 475. We're 80% of the way through this tightening cycle. Maybe it's smarter to be prudent and say 25 basis points per meeting. Give it time to work its way through the economy. As we all know, there are long and variable lags before monetary policy affects the economy. So it's a jump ball, as we'd say in the U.S. vis-a-vis -vis basketball, uh, a toss of the coin, let's say. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, we'll see where we go. But I think rates fortunately have repriced one last thing. 
Since mid-January, the Fed Fund's terminal rate has moved up 80 basis points in the future market. And importantly, the assumed easing of policy thereafter has moved up by over 100 basis points, meaning 100 basis points less easing by March of 2024. That's a healthy thing. Now we just need the equity market and credit markets to reprice the recession risk that comes with such an extreme tightening. And what, what, yeah, what explains that for you? Because I mean, that is one of the sort of anomalies of the market at the moment, or one of the you know, anomalies to me, or maybe other people are thinking this is perfectly right. But, uh, you know, when you look at what's happened in terms of, let's say, risk aversion, and measured risk aversion. So you think of things like, you know, the equity risk premium, you know, that for non-wonks, that's the sort of excess return demanded of stocks uh, over and above the risk-free rate. I'm happy to talk about that on LinkedIn as anyone wants to, but it's a pretty boring thing. But it's one way of measuring kind of how people are feeling about the risk inv- involved in stocks. Or if you look at earnings to price ratios relative mm-hmm. to all sorts of stuff, it, it seems to, and the same in the credit market as well, it seems to imply that actually risk aversion is quite low, that there is a high level of risk appetite around the world. And actually that it may be sort of structurally a bit higher than it was pre-pandemic, hmm. which is odd given the world we seem to live in, you know, a world of war, uncertainty, inflation and all the rest of it. So uh, I wonder, do you have any views on that? Well, not to play to stereotypes, but having been a bond trader, having traded foreign exchange and having been investor in equities, there's a personality type we often assume, <laughs> assess, you know, ascribe to certain people in different markets. Bond hmm. investors tend to be inherently more negative. If you think about it, you're always worried about, will I get my money back on a bond? Yes. Equity investors, inherently optimist, always thinking about the bright outlook. Currency investors will leave them on the side because I'm not sure you invest in currencies, you trade them. But when I look at the equity market, you know, to me, there's a contradiction across these markets. But there's a story you could make. Mm -hmm. You could make the story that the Fed is doing all the right things and central banks are doing all the right things and that they're going to be so prescient that they're going to basically pull back whenever they see signs of economic weakness and we're going to avoid recession and earnings are going to be fine and the P.E. multiples make sense. That feels well, that rare to me. That's great, Goldilocks. Yeah. Um, now, I've been looking at a number of kind of pieces this morning and recent days. And what I found interesting is the equity market is horrendous at forecasting recessions. <laughs> yes. And in fact, if you look back over the last, say, out of nine of the last 12 hiking cycles that the Fed, the U.S. had a recession, typically the equity market was within two or three percent of its peak within two to three months before that. Yes. And so the equity market tends to always think there's going to be a smooth landing, or now we apparently say no landing. You know, this plane will land. Yeah. And so I, I do worry that investors are getting too optimistic. And the way I would put that into the S&P 500 terms is consensus earnings growth for 2023 is zero. Yeah. 2024 consensus is 11%. I think recession risk has been delayed, not eliminated. Mm. And so I worry that that 11% growth next year is materially too optimistic. I tend to think maybe it's maybe it's a decline in 2023 with a rebound, maybe of half that much in 2024, and that the market basically at 18 and a quarter times forward earnings on the wrong E is pretty expensive when I compare that to Moody's BAA bonds, meaning the mm. lowest rung of investment grade corporate bonds that are trading at 17.3 times earnings, not 18.3. You know, I think we need a low a decrease in that price to earnings ratio on the right earnings estimates. So yeah, that feels that feels that feels right. I mean, that's consistent also with how we're funny enough positioned tactically. I guess the sort of other sort of question implicit in what we're sort of discussing at the moment is a bit more about the U.S.'s kind of long term prospects Mm. and what's going on here and what we've seen in the last couple of years seems to be a kind of real change in 
policy direction. We've seen the return of some industrial policy, you know, the CHIPS Act, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, you know, these huge bits of subsidizing action, even picking winners to a degree, and it's quite muscular as well. Uh, And that feels like a big change. And we've also got potentially big investment coming, not yet, admittedly, in green and brown energy, you know, in order to avert our climate catastrophe, that's a necessity. There's also potentially the stimulus that comes from war and what that does to defense budgets and so on. So we feel like we may be in a different era in terms of investment, spending, so on, maybe also in the underlying growth rate of the economy. Do you have any views on kind of whether we return to that quite low level of growth that people talked about previous to the pandemic or whether there's a new world? There's also this kind of influx of new technologies coming along. I mean, AI may be be a damp squid, but this does feel a little bit more tangible than previous crypto cults and various other kind of technological paradigms that have promised before. Well, let's put crypto aside because I like to talk about things that are real and have value. Um, So I I would say I am cautiously optimistic, which I'm sorry, is such a lukewarm term, that the CHIPS Act and the Inflation Reduction Act might possibly potentially, enough subject conditionality in there, be reflective of a change in philosophy in the U.S. government about being more involved in industrial policy. The reason I had so much conditionality there, though, is... The appetite for fiscal stimulus of that variety is already questionable. It was something President Biden was able to get done with a Democratic House and a Democratic Senate. Now, to be fair, the infrastructure package, $1.2 trillion passed two years ago, was bipartisan. Mm -hmm. So that's encouraging that the U.S. is finally recognizing that crumbling roads and bridges are not good for economic competitiveness. But when it comes to the Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS Act, it's a good start. Now, I mean... I tend to think on climate change, the energy transition, the International Energy Agency is forecasting we'll need to spend $175 trillion over 30 years for the energy transition. $369 billion is is nice, (laughs) but maybe move at a zero to that and you're in a good place. But I think it's going to be important to see how this plays out because it could be the beginning of a psychological shift. Interestingly, even today... Volkswagen is in the media saying that they think they could get up to $10 billion of subsidies if they build their next new battery plant in the U.S. instead of Eastern Europe. And they're wanting to see what's Europe's response. You know, what's the counteroffer? And what I'm hoping we see, because I do think we're in the midst of a climate emergency, is that Europe basically has a bit of a race to the top with the U.S. and says, you know what, we're going to match you and raise you. And let's really start moving much more aggressively than we have in the past on this energy transition. So, I think it's really exciting to see the fire being lit under Brussels and arguably under the UK as well to see, you know, what are you going to do? Do you want to give up this innovation that's going to basically move to the US if it gets the subsidies or do you want to compete? And I'm hoping that Europe competes because the last thing I think we want to do from a geopolitical strategic perspective is leave all of the cards in China's hands, which is what we've kind of done to date. Mm -hmm. Um, The CHIPS Act. $50 $50 billion is a great start. Yeah, but it's Let's, you know, TSMC spends $35 billion a year on CapEx as one company. Mm-hmm. You know, 52 is a good start. And again, yet again, we see Intel now saying, is Europe going to give us, you know, X billion euros to help us with our plant in Europe? Mm. Let's see. Yet again, strategically, it's very important that we not be entirely reliant on greater China or Taiwan yeah. for our semiconductors. So all encouraging. How much does it move the needle on like a five to 10 year view on GDP growth in the U.S.? It's marginal. Yeah. It's on the margin. But let's not forget, there are multiplier effects on those numbers. So, mm-hmm. you know, it could be the catalyst that gets us over a trillion dollars of investment from the private sector. That's very meaningful. 
Yeah, I mean, as, as it goes, there is a sort of strand of study, which I'm sure you've come across. Uh, it seems to be quite popular in academia anyway at the moment, but a strand of study with regards to the UK economy trying to explain the last 15 years of incredible stagnation in labour productivity. And people have talked about, some economists have talked, economic historians have talked about this being unique in 250 years of history. And one of the sort of, exa- one of the cases put forward is that austerity, might have been to blame in the po- in the aftermath of the and blame is a strong word here you know policy choice and so on but that austerity like public investment is needed to crowd in private investment which is kind of contrary to some of the thinking of the last few years and i think to your point market prices don't care about a lot of the stuff we care about and i think you know that diversification that is offered possibly by the inflation reduction act certainly and where you manufacture stuff and how you create resilience i think that's potentially quite interesting but in that context i guess so where are the sort of big areas that you're really interested in from a asset allocation, stock selection? What are the sort of big things that you're really thinking about with your funds at the moment? What are the sort of exciting bits? Well, before I go to that, I want to amplify what you just said about the austerity and what that did to growth. We had the same issue in the US. After yeah. 2009, when we looked at aggregate per capita spending of local, state and federal government in the US, it actually went down in the aftermath of a recession. In every other recession post-World War II, Government spending went up to cushion demand to basically support the economy. No wonder we had such a lethargic recovery afterwards. Mm-hmm. And again, I, I do think one other anecdote on this front, China has basically been gobbling up market share across strategic industries using industrial policy. Yeah. Within the param- you know parameters of the WTO as a developing country, they've gotten away with quite a lot. Instead of just accusing China of being bad, maybe there are areas where you can learn from what China did, much like the U.S. tried to learn from the Japanese in the 1980s. And I'm aware of the fact that when governments get involved in allocating capital, there is inefficiency. But the only thing worse than that is not competing at all and seeing your industrial capabilities and your technological capabilities migrate out of your country where you're no longer capable of competing when you finally figure out that you made the mistake. So I think this is an incredibly important point for growth long term. And it's nice to be a free market purist, but it's a great way to have a country in poverty. So you need to recognize there is a role for government regardless of your philosophy on free markets. Now, having said that, sorry for the diatribe. No, no, it's good. Um, Yeah, it's a favorite topic of mine, so yeah. (laughs) I do think from an asset allocation perspective, we're in a really interesting time. I think we're positioned for potentially a brighter outlook for the next five to 10 years, but we still need some rebasing in the equity market and in credit markets. You know, I spoke at Focus on the equity market before. Credit spreads, if I look at them since 2010, which I chose because I wanted to kind of avoid the GFC being included, yeah. we're basically in line with credit spread averages for the Eurozone and for the U.S. for that 13-year period. I think recession risk in the Eurozone in the U.S. is probably around 40% in the next 18 months. So it's not the base case, but it's pretty close. Yeah. Well, that means to me credit spreads on investment grade probably should be a bit higher, and on high yield, they should be materially higher. Now, to be fair, high yield is a bit higher than that 13-year average, but we're talking maybe 30 to 40 basis points on a base of 350. So it's not, you're not getting paid for that credit risk. You're not getting paid for the recession risk in equities. So what I'm thinking from an asset allocation perspective right now is in the bond market, I prefer being shorter duration. I still think there's a bit more upside in the long end of the yield curve. Short end of the curve is pricing appropriately. I'm debating, by the way, if the Fed hikes by 50 on March 22nd, maybe I won't get as much of a rise in 10-year yields in the US, but I tend to think you're going to get a shot of extending duration closer to four and a half percent. So maybe I'm being a little greedy. Maybe you should ease in at four and a quarter or whatever. <laughs> um, but you'll be able to make some good long-term investments that you can basically buy and hold if you're that kind of investor mm-hmm. at those levels. 
I also would suggest, by the way, you don't want to be buying treasuries. If we're at four and a half, you're going to get a really attractive yield out of investment grade corporate bonds. I'm hoping we see some widening of those spreads on top of higher rates. That could be good. So shorter duration up in credit quality is a good idea, I think, right now. In the equity market, I do think the U.S. has 10 to 15 percent downside from, say, 4,000 to, say, 3,400, 3,600. Non-U.S. markets, I think, are positioned to defend a bit better. I mean, the core reason for my U.S. negativity right now is that there's higher discount rates that have not been reflected in the future cash flows of companies. Now, that's most detrimental or most you know negative for the longest duration companies, meaning if you're a company that makes a lot of money right now, think deep value cyclical trading at eight times earnings in the energy metals mining space, yeah. you're short duration. You're probably paying big dividends, big buybacks. You're getting your money back soon. So discount rates are less important because you're getting the money now. Yeah. If you're buying a speculative growth company that might not make money for the next five to seven years, and then, by the way, their priority is going to be to pay down debt, mm. and then maybe in seven to 10 years, you get a dividend or a buyback, that's very long duration. If you can get a 5% yield on cash, yeah. it's expensive to wait seven years yeah, for your really dividends. And so, so I think yeah. there's more downside in that end of the market, and the U.S. has more exposure to that end of the spectrum of that growth, speculative growth, mm -hmm. than non-U.S. markets do. And by the way, it doesn't help that the U.S. market is five to six PE multiples higher. So there's more error in that valuation story than there is in other markets. So, so in equities, I would say non-U.S. over U.S. right now on a five-year basis, I think the U.S. still has more growth potential for all the reasons we just talked about, Inflation Reduction Act, chips, et cetera. But I think, again, the valuation matters. So where would you want to be within the market? I'm not saying sell all your U.S. equities. That would be an unwise call in my view. But you want to concentrate your capital on more of the quality part of the market, it tends to be more defensive on the downside, better ability to pass through price increases. I also do think there are some thematic strategies that might be worth thinking about on a five to 10 year view globally, strategies that focus on climate solutions. I mean, yeah. this is the biggest economic disruption of our lifetimes. There'll be trillions of market cap created in the market and trillions destroyed. There are opportunities here to profit from those companies. Some of them established companies, some of them kind of up and comers yeah. in that space. I also think, you know, strategies focused on sustainable agriculture, climate change is going to raise, it's already raising, the variability of precipitation, which decreases the predictability of crop yields, raises the cost of capital for agriculture. We're going to need to innovate around this area, mm -hmm. and that could be an interesting place, and it's going to last for decades. And then finally, you know, any way of applying technology data to lower the cost of healthcare. All of the countries yeah. in developed markets have aging populations, whether the government pays for it or the private sector we're going to have to tackle these problems. And there's some great opportunities there. So I think those themes could be interesting. Just keep in mind, in many cases, they might be a little bit longer duration with that discount rate risk. That's super interesting. Ron, I mean, so just for context for listeners, I think just to sort of try and sort of bring it all together, I guess, is that, you know, remember when we're talking about these subjects and worrying about certain exposures, the key for us really is to sort of remain invested in a diversified pool of assets. Exactly. That's the kind of real trick here is to try and stick with it. We tend to, as Ron does and as, you know, the other companies we employ on your behalf, they tend to make tilts at the edges of the funds and portfolios based on the convictions Ron has talked about. The key is to remain invested because actually one of the stories and Ron was talking about so eloquently there is investing at the moment. I think a lot of what people are now starting to offer a lot more credibly is the ability to profit and fund the future of humanity, the, the solutions that we need to get us to the next stage, to live beyond the next few generations, basically. And the key, as I said, is to stay invested, stick with that pool of diversified assets. And really the driving force behind that, 
beyond recessions and all sorts of things that confuse the short term is productivity. And for productivity, I think we can be pretty optimistic at the moment. We've got an incoming branch of technology uh, in artificial intelligence. Like we said, it may be a damp squib, couldn't it? Chat GPT could just be another noisy middle-aged man full of mistruths, but uh, which we don't necessarily need. But yes, I think it's an exciting time to be invested. But that leaves me just to say, Ron, thank you very much indeed. That was a great, great half hour. So thank you for your time. And listeners, uh, we look forward to speaking to you again next week. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.